oftentimes people don't want to think about it because it is upsetting. And they'll say, don't tell me, I don't want to know. And it's because people actually have empathy and are upset to hear about other animal suffering. And I think one of the biggest obstacles for people who want to shift out of that and to perhaps go vegan or, or eat more plant-based foods is they just don't know how to do it. And they don't think they can do it. And so there's this fear of change, this fear of failure, this fear that they're not going to like vegan food or they're not going to know how to do it. And so they don't even want to think about it because if you feel like you're doing something harmful and you don't feel like you can do something differently, you know, there's this real strong desire not to look at it. But if you feel that you can make a difference uh, and you then you're more able to actually look at the problems and the harm that we're participating in as long as you know you can get out of it and you can do something you can feel good about. So I think a big part of this is just demonstrating, again, that eating vegan is not that difficult, that vegan food is satisfying, and you can do this. I mean, that's a big part of it. You can do this, you know, as opposed to, oh, gosh, it's impossible, because it isn't. Welcome to the Yogi Triathlete Podcast. We are Jess and BJ, and we're on a mission to create a better world. It's the world that exists within us and the one we find when we align our values and choices with the person we desire to be in a world we dream of seeing. And that kind of world is compassionate and vibrant and abundant. And it's the one that already exists through the many good works of people on this planet. And today we're blessed to be talking with one of those kind, compassionate, and courageous souls. Gene Bauer is the co-founder and president of Farm Sanctuary. He is the star of the Yogi Triathlete Podcast, episode 17, which we recorded in 2016 when BJ and I were living on the road. We were staying in Ithaca, New York, and we'd drive to Watkins Glen, drop our dog Clark off at the dog sitter, and then headed to Farm Sanctuary, where we volunteered for seven days. It was a profound experience of transformation transformation and hard labor. Also, it was nothing less than heaven on earth. It was 100% evidence that a better world is here right now. We have to keep leaning into it with our choices and actions. The residents at Farm Sanctuary are living their best life, and it all started with one act of radical compassion on August 3rd, 1986, when Jean rescued a sheep who became known as Hilda. Gene has been relentless in his advocacy for animals for almost four decades. He has visited hundreds of farms, stockyards, and slaughterhouses documenting deplorable conditions. Through his investigative and rescue work, he has educated millions about the plight of modern farm animals. His message is one of compassion, and it transcends age and race or class, and it hits deep into the essence of who we are and begs the question, if we can live well without causing unnecessary harm, why wouldn't we? Gene's approach differs from judgment or what people should or shouldn't do. Instead, he focuses on teaching people what they can do so that they can see they have a choice and can make a difference. From hobnobbing with Hollywood royalty to debating on national television, countless public addresses, and authoring two books, Gene is showing this world that compassion is a superpower for good and, in effect, has inspired many to shift their mindset around animals to friends, not food. When I think of Gene Bauer, I recall this mantra from yoga, may all beings everywhere be happy and free. And may the thoughts, words, and actions of my own life contribute in some way to that happiness and to that freedom for all. Jean Bauer, welcome back to the show. We are just thrilled to have you with us today. Oh, it's, it's great to be with you. And thank you for that very, very kind introduction. And, uh, you know, we're all just doing our best, right? We're all part of this planet and our actions matter. And I think most people would rather be compassionate. So, we're just doing the best we can to bring about that kind of a world. Um, Gene, since our, it's been a while, as Jesse alluded to, since we have, since we've caught up, we sat with you at Farm Sanctuary in 2016. Like what, what have you been up to personally? You know, what's going on with you and then what's happening with the farm? Uh, maybe an update on the farm. I think last time we were there, you were just getting the tiny homes situated. Um, so yeah, dive into that. 
Yes, yes. So our sanctuaries in Watkins Glen, New York, and in Acton, California, continue caring for animals. We do tours at these farms for people who want to come and visit and get to know cows and pigs and chickens and sheep as friends, not food. Uh, Our sanctuary in Watkins Glen also has overnight accommodations, as you mentioned. We have bed and breakfast cabins, and we also have tiny houses. And these are usually open during season, you know, because the winters in Watkins Glen are pretty chilly and it's not a, a robust visitor time, but those will be opening again in May. And that goes usually through October. And those accommodations book very early in the season. So anybody interested should pay attention early and try to get the dates you want. Uh, But it's been a very positive experience for people to visit, to spend time on the farm, to wake up at a sanctuary, and to see animals who are enjoying life uh, like we all want to uh, live. Um, Organizationally, we're also doing a lot more in the advocacy space right now, which I'm really happy about. Uh, It's impossible for any sanctuary to rescue all the animals who need to be rescued, So ultimately, we need to change the system and hopefully start shifting billions of dollars of government subsidies away from factory farming, which is how this money is currently being spent, and invest in a different kind of food system, one that is better for people, the planet, and other animals, and also where we're growing plant foods instead of animal foods, doing it in a more ecologically friendly way, a more just and sustainable, compassionate way. And so we need to change the food system ultimately. And that's what we're putting some more energy into now, I'm I'm really happy to say. Have you seen, so fast forward, like six years, I mean, to today, I mean, there has, we've seen change, um, but what have, what have you seen? Like, for instance, um, you know, I was just talking with Jess about veg news on Instagram. Like, I feel like every day there is like something newsworthy about an alternative product that maybe a McDonald's or some big chain. Um, so change is happening. I mean, obviously the change is more plant whole foods, but these sort of substitutions are making, bridging the gap, maybe bringing more awareness to uh, the potential for options. Yes. I mean, you can now go into fast food places and get vegan hamburgers in some cases, right? And that is not was not the case 10 years ago. So we're making significant progress, I think, in terms of making plant-based foods more accessible in more venues. Uh, at the same time, there is a robust sort of local plant-based food movement underway. And the USDA has actually published articles, including veganic agriculture, believe it or not. They actually use that word in a publication. And they also did another publication about a farmer who's a doctor in New Jersey who grows plant foods and uses food as medicine. And this USDA publication talked about vegan potlucks at uh, Ethos, Ethos Farm run by Ron Weiss in New Jersey. So there's starting to be positive examples of how we can live on this planet, how we can nourish ourselves. And although the USDA has spent extremely small amounts of money in this more promising direction, uh, they're starting to at least acknowledge it. And I'm hopeful that some of the billions of dollars that are currently enabling our inhumane animal-based system can start shifting towards enabling more of this plant-based agriculture, including urban agriculture. So there's rural, there's suburban, there's urban, there's a food not lawns movement that I get very excited about. We have more acreage in lawns in the United States than we have acreage in growing fruits and vegetables. So could you imagine if all of these lawns transitioned to growing fruits and vegetables and where you had gardeners who instead of mowing lawns and putting down fertilizer, were actually gardening and growing produce, and then homeowners would be getting produce instead of grass clippings. And when you have a neighborhood doing this, you have the potential to have a whole, you know, very abundant supply of fresh produce for the community. And it could go, you know, so, and then you could see farmers markets, you could see CSAs, you could see, you know, food for free and accessible to people who need it. So there's, um, we have so much on this planet and so much potential. 
Uh, we've just not been utilizing our land or other resources very wisely. And if we can start doing that, I think we can feed everybody well without causing harm and even sequestering carbon. I mean, veganic agriculture can actually build soil and sequester carbon. So that would help to mitigate against greenhouse gases. So there's so many things we can do through our food system to not only help other animals, but to help ourselves and to help our planet and to address some of our greatest threats, such as the climate crisis and the loss of biodiversity. So we can, we can you know, storm through the village and we can, you know, say all the, like, the crazy things that are going on that are really a lot of them are hard to digest. What is the best way to get the message out about um, these choices that we have to make uh, about our food, even I don't want to say even if, because I know for some it's their option, um, but opting for that vegan burger at McDonald's um, to the people who you know are turning their front lawn into a garden, what's the best way for us to get this message out? Because the things that are hard to see, the things that we secretly don't want to know because we don't know what to do with that information or how to make a difference or a change, you know, that, that approach doesn't seem to work. Yeah. Very well. So what's what's the messaging for how we can get this out to the world consistently for the rest of the time we're here on this earth? I, well, I think different people respond to different messages. And I think for some people seeing the cruelty of factory farming is sort of a slap in the face and a wake up. Uh, but if they feel bad about it and are upset to see the cruelty, they need to have ways to move forward without contributing to the cruelty. So I think a big part of what needs to happen is solutions. And we need to enable and encourage and empower people to take steps uh, that are more compassionate, that they feel good about, um, that are good for themselves as well as for the planet, that are aligned with their own values and their own interests. And, you know, we are social animals as human beings. We tend to do what we see others do. So one of the best things each of us can do is to try to be a positive example and to show others just how easy it is to eat plants instead of animals and to support a food system that is not harmful. Uh, so instead of you know pounding people over and over with messages about animal cruelty, which can be very off-putting, very upsetting, and sometimes causes people to put up walls and, and not listen, uh, bringing tasty vegan food to gatherings, to social events, and just showing people how accessible it is and how doable it is. I, I've spoken to people many times who have said, being vegan is too hard, I could never do it. And it's partly because they're not familiar with it, and, it, and it's just scary. Change is scary generally, and when you talk about changing how you eat, that can be very personal and scary. Um, but those same people, when you bring them a tasty vegan dish or take them to a, a, a dinner that's vegan and they try it and they eat it, they will sometimes say, wow, if it was like this, I could do this. So I think good food is one of our most valuable tools to show people that vegan food can be satisfying, can be tasty, uh, can make us feel better physically, but also emotionally. So I think to the extent that we can uh, provide support and encourage and help people experience vegan food and vegan living in a way that is attractive and, and, and feels easy, uh, I think that's a very effective way to be a vegan activist. Um, but also recognizing that each person is on their own journey uh, and each person kind of has to come to it on their own terms. And we are here to basically support positive steps in a more compassionate direction. Yeah, I think that's one thing in our recent research just came up again about you is meeting people, you know, meeting people where they're at, which is, you know, we do it with our team too, our, you know, team of athletes, like meet them where they're at. They want to go so far, but they also are hesitant for that change that as, um, as advocates or coaches, like we kind of know, like, this is a good path. This is something that, that would, that would really benefit you, but it's kind of like a pump the brakes. Like, let's just see where you're at right now. What is the breadcrumb I can pull on 
that maybe plants the seed to some future change. So how is, how do you manage that? Like I welcome you where you're, where you are and I, I trust maybe someday you'll get there. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's a process. It's really a process. And I think it requires recognizing that again, everybody's different. Everybody has different lived experiences and also has different um, access. You know, some folks, for some folks, it's a lot easier to go to the farmer's market or to go to an organic food store and get vegan food. Uh, in some parts of the world, in some parts of the U.S., it's very hard to find healthy vegan food. You know, there's liquor stores and, you know, no supermarkets and no produce. And so in certain areas, finding vegan food can actually be difficult. And uh, I think we just need to be... Uh, empathetic and, and understanding that each person is kind of in a different place and has different opportunities and different challenges. So I think it really kind of boils down to empathy and recognizing that each of us is walking on our own path and try to, you know, genuinely help others. You know, I think that's a really important part of this, um, you know, helping people to make choices and, and and provide options to people so that there's health and well-being ultimately that results. Uh, you can't tell people what to do. I mean, the more we try to tell others what to do, sometimes the, the, the higher up the wall gets. So, you know, when I speak with people, it is really trying to find common ground. And for some people, you know, animal cruelty is really important. So that's an issue to talk more about. For some people, Health is really important, and it's also really relevant. People who have heart issues and are on medication or people who have diabetes or people who have these, you know, horrendous diet-related illnesses, in many cases, are very motivated to try to find a way out. Uh, if there is an opportunity to find healthy plant foods uh, and steps out of that unhealthy uh, situation. Uh, and then for some people, the environment is very important, you know, the animal agriculture contributes more to the climate crisis than the entire transportation industry, according to the United Nations. Also, it's a leading cause of the loss of biodiversity. And there was actually a study done a few years ago that looked at the mammals on Earth. And they found that only 4% of the mammals on Earth are living in the wild. 96% are either human or domesticated, which is mainly farm animals. So it's staggering to see this. And the reason is that animal agriculture, raising animals for food, requires enormous amounts of land and other resources, which is why rainforests are being cut down, other ecosystems are being destroyed to grow corn and soy or to graze cattle or other farm animals. Um, in the U.S., 10 times more land is used for animal agriculture versus plant-based agriculture. So shifting to plant-based agriculture would mean that much less land would be required so that more of it could be rewilded, which would then create more habitat for more wild animals. But unfortunately, with this push towards animal production, not only in the U.S., but increasingly around the world, we're now starting to see more and more ecosystems and habitats turned into animal feed areas. And, and so we're losing biodiversity. It's, and so by shifting how we eat, eating plants instead of animals, each of us can also be part of the solution to this and start lightening our ecological footprint. And uh, so each of us has a role to play, but we live in a system and in a structure where there's di diverse forms of access to or not access to healthy food and, and opportunities to eat plants instead of animals. This path of animal agriculture and, and what it's built itself into, you know, a million years down the road, what is, what is that legacy? <laughs> well, you know, some scientists say we're now living in the Anthropocene era, a time dominated by human presence, basically. And, you know, in a million years, the fossil record will show lots of plastic and chicken bones among the telltale signs of this era. Um, so... Hopefully we can start uh, reshaping the way we interact on the earth and, and creating less plastic. 
stop mass producing animals for slaughter. Um, but it's also a time when we're seeing extinctions of other species because we're losing habitats and biodiversity, which again is largely related to our heavy animal agriculture footprint. So, uh, you know, a million years down the road, it's what, what that looks like in a million years is very much dependent on what we do today. And hopefully in each of us each day, uh, can make choices, can try to be more conscientious, can try to live in a way that causes less harm. None of us will ever be perfect. We're human beings. Uh, we will make mistakes, but critical to making mistakes is learning from those mistakes. And at this time, I believe it's pretty obvious that we have made some really serious mistakes uh, in terms of how we relate to other animals how we eat and how we sustain ourselves on this planet is not humane, it is not healthy, and it is ecologically destructive. And I think if we are rational animals, we would try to make choices and eat food that actually is nourishing instead of making us sick. We would support a food system that's not destroying the planet and threatening our ability to, to live here. And, and most people also consider consider themselves to be humane. And I do believe most people are humane and would rather not cause unnecessary harm to other animals or other people or the earth. And so, um, but most people, unfortunately, are unwittingly supporting this factory farming system by eating animal products without really thinking very much about it. And oftentimes people don't want to think about it because it is upsetting. And they'll say, don't tell me, I don't want to know. And it's because people actually have empathy, and are upset to hear about other animal suffering. And I think one of the biggest obstacles for people who want to shift out of that and to perhaps go vegan or, or eat more plant-based foods is they just don't know how to do it, and they don't think they can do it. And so there's this fear of change, this fear of failure, this fear that they're not going to like vegan food or they're not going to know how to do it, and so they don't even want to think about it because... If you feel like you're doing something harmful and you don't feel like you can do something differently, you know, there's this real strong desire not to look at it. But if you feel that you can make a difference uh, and you then you're more able to actually look at the problems and the harm that we're in, participating in as long as you know you can get out of it and you can do something you can feel good about. So I think a big part of this is just demonstrating, again, that eating vegan is not that difficult, that vegan food is satisfying, and you can do this. I mean, that's a big part of it. You can do this, you know, as opposed to, oh, gosh, it's impossible, because it isn't. I think that I don't want to be known for chicken bones. I mean, that's just, that, that is like, it's so disturbing. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. kind of, that's kind of what I'm taking away from what you just said. You just got more vegan. Yeah, I just got yeah. really more vegan. <laughs> But I, but as I'm listening to you talk, I'm thinking about these habits and beliefs that were ingrained in us growing up. This, this pattern. So when you talked about we're meted and greeted with many choices every day to make changes in the way that we're choosing the food, a lot of it is coming from just just because it's what we've habitually done. And you talked about the fear of change, and which is scary for everyone. Let's, that's everybody has some sense of fear about change, whatever change that is in their life. Tying this back, you did a post a few days, a few days ago, I think from Thich Nhat Hanh about presence mm. um, and breathing, uh, the power of coming into the moment, which I think you can agree is where change happens. Like being able to beam yourself into the moment when you're actually reaching for that steak and instead you choose maybe a salad or a vegetable or something else. How do you, how do you work with presence? How are you, because you've, it's something you've practiced maybe, but how are you always able, or how could someone always be able to be available to make those choices in their day? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, I think each of us has our own process, right. To doing this, but paying attention to now, paying attention to the moment, uh, paying attention to the present really is all we have, you know, and 
trying not to get distracted by, well, what if this, or, oh, I shouldn't have done that, right? Uh, Really being present because each moment then leads to the next moment, which then leads to the next and so on. Um, So for me, it's, it's an ongoing process. I do sometimes think about past events. And I think it is, it's valuable to think about and learn from past events. Uh, I sometimes worry about future things, but I try to do that uh, less and less as time goes. Uh, I just try to do the best I can day by day. And I believe that in, in, in taking it day by day in that sense, you actually create a better future. Um, you know, it is also, I guess, important sometimes to have plans and do this and then this and this and this, but each of those plans requires daily practice. So I think, again, the daily practice is where we reside uh, and it's where we really are alive. That's the only place we're really alive. Um, You know, we can be alive in our minds uh, envisioning things and, you know, there's a place for dreaming and for hoping and I certainly do a fair bit of that. Um, But And if I'm going to dream and I'm going to hope and I'm going to think about the future, I'm going to try to do it in a very positive way (laughs) instead of in a negative way and hopefully kind of dream the thing into existence instead of nightmaring the thing into existence. (laughs) So so if I'm going to think about the future, I'm going to lean in the positive direction. Um, And I guess, you know, for me, one of the sort of mantras and the the approaches is is rooted in that uh, serenity prayer you know, to give me the strength to change the things I can, the serenity to accept things I can't change, and the wisdom to know the difference. So if there's something really troubling or something that really bothers me, first, I try not to reside in it and let it drag me down too far, because that's not going to be beneficial to anybody, and I'm going to be less pleasant, and I'm going to be less effective, ultimately. Uh, so you have to accept things that you can't change. And that's part of, I think, kind of being present because if you can't change something and it's very upsetting to not be dwelling in that, but to dwell in the positive and the things you can do and focusing on and doing the things you can do moment by moment. So that's for me, part of being present too. Um, But yeah, I think we all live in the moment. We all you know, have other things going on in our head that might not always be of the moment. But but when I go there, I try to go positive instead of negative. Yeah. And that in and of itself takes presence to recognize, you know, that will be so easy to go down this road of disaster, but I'm going to lean into you know, truly what it is, is it's opposite. Yeah. And because if you're going to fuel the nightmare or you're going to fuel the dream, you're bringing both of those things into existence. So really, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's our choice to a degree. Um, but certainly what is a hundred percent of our choice is, you know, how we respond to, you know, those moments. And I, I found that an anchor to presence is the place where I can feel quite invincible. Not that it's easy, but that I'm fully powerful and in control of the choice that I'm making. Um, so it's no secret that you are a compassionate being, Gene. I mean, Time Magazine called you the conscience of the food movement. Um, what is, in, let's go into the past, in, an early memory of your experience where, you know, I don't know if it was an animal or something else, but where this this path began to open up for you, this path of nonviolence, let's call it that, this path of nonviolence. Like what is an early, an early memory, maybe the earliest memory you have of, of when you said that path of violence is not for me? Yeah. You know, for me, it really was sort of uh, an incremental process. Um, there was not any like one particular moment I can remember that made me decide to do what I've been doing for the last almost 40 years now. Um, when I was a kid, you know, I grew, I was born in 1962. So Vietnam was happening. The cold war was happening. Uh, the environmental movement was just starting to pick up steam. And so I saw all kinds of violence happening in the world. And it was something I just didn't feel good about and didn't want to be part of. And I remember when I was maybe six years old, 
this beautiful oak tree across the street from my parents' house was cut down so that a house could be made bigger and they put up a wall. And I just remember viscerally being saddened and hurt to watch this beautiful tree that had stood there for probably hundreds of years cut down. Um, And then I saw animals hit by cars. I grew up in LA, so there was a lot of cars. I saw wild animals' habitats encroached on. I remember as a kid, uh, this deer got stuck in a neighbor's fence in the backyard and that was struggling there and ended up being killed. So I just saw the consequences of human activity on other animals and on the earth and on ourselves with, with these global wars happening. And it just felt really bad. And I didn't want to be part of it. So in high school, I started learning more and my grandmother told me about how veal calves are raised. And I just said, I'd never, I'm never eating veal. And so that was my first sort of animal <laughs> rights kind of decision uh, in high school. Uh, in college, I hitchhiked around the U.S. and got involved with activist organizations. And I learned more about factory farming and how harmful it was. And so I went vegan in 1985 and felt that this was an issue that really wasn't getting attention. Most people were unwittingly supporting factory farming with their food choices uh, without really even understanding the impacts of of what they were eating and and the cause uh, that they were contributing to, the harm they were contributing to. So in 1986, I co-founded Farm Sanctuary, and we felt it was really important to see firsthand what was happening. So we started actually to go in to factory farms and stockyards and slaughterhouses to document conditions. And our initial thinking, naive as it was, was that we would go in, we would take pictures, we would show people, and they would all go vegan because it was so upsetting. Nobody would want to be part of this. Um, Of course, it's more complicated than that. uh, But we did get lots of pictures and did a lot of documentation. We got got some media coverage. We helped raise awareness. And we we continue doing this. Um, But ultimately, people also need solutions. And so we're doing more of that now. But, but for me, it's just still an ongoing process of learning, of trying to um, raise awareness, to try to encourage people and inspire people and support people to live more kindly, uh, to recognize that what we do to other animals is, matters to those other animals. And it also uh, is a reflection of who we are. And I think most people, again, would rather not be inhumane or cruel or causing unnecessary harm. So it's really about uh, continuing to raise awareness and provide tools and support for people who want to live more compassionately. But yeah, it's been a long, long journey and the journey continues. Tell us about Hilda. I love this story. I think you told it on the first podcast we did, and I'm sure people have heard it. And I know that those people would love to hear it again because I heard it yesterday when I was listening to a podcast that you did with Rip, and it just became so clear to me and through my perspective, the lens of my mind, that there was something higher at work in those moments when Hilda and you came together. And um, just from such a despondency to life to really an animal that inspired and sparked so much expansion and movement in this in this reform. So yeah, we'd love to hear her story, please. Yeah, yeah. So in the early days, we spent lots of time visiting stockyards and other places where farm animals were being mistreated. And the stockyard is a place where animals are actually brought to be sold. So it's a large area with alleyways and pens where animals are trucked in, unloaded, herded through the alleyways and and held in pens, and then they're sold through an auction ring. And then after they're sold, they go off either to a slaughterhouse or to another farm to be used for whatever reason. So it's a place where animals are coming from hundreds or sometimes thousands of miles away. Many of them die in transit or they die inside the stockyard because they're not treated well, they don't get the veterinary care they need. And we found living animals... Uh, in alleyways just left for dead, sometimes in pens left for dead. And this one particular day, we were at the stockyard and out behind it, this is in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 
there's a pile of dead animals because, again, animals die routinely at the stockyard. And so on this particular day, there were it was a pile with dead sheep, dead cows, dead pigs. The maggots were so thick you could hear them buzzing. Uh, one of the carcasses had decayed almost to skeleton. And off of this dead pile, uh, one of the sheep lifted her head and she was still alive. And we were stunned that a living animal would be discarded on this pile of dead animals. So we rescued her, brought her to a nearby veterinarian, thinking she would probably have to be euthanized. But as he started examining her and checking her out, she started to perk up, and then she stood up. And she lived with us for more than 10 years. So that was Hilda, our first rescued animal. And she was what the industry calls a downed animal, an animal too sick to walk, which is why she was thrown on the dead pile. They thought she was dead or not worth their time to try to rehabilitate. So they just threw her on the dead pile. But then that started a whole campaign to prevent downed animals from being marketed at stockyards and slaughterhouses. And we've now been able to ban the slaughter of downed cows across the U.S. Uh, So the USDA now has a policy saying no downed cows can go to the food supply. And we're still working to prevent other downed animals like pigs from being used for human food. But that's an ongoing, ongoing battle. But uh, it was just amazing to see Hilda recover uh, and enjoy life. And, you know, you contrast that with an animal being left for dead. And, And probably the way this occurred is that You know, animals are transported to the stockyard from all over the country. Uh, They're often crowded in these trucks. And this was, we found Hilda in August. So it was a very hot time of year. And she was probably in a, she was in a truck with hundreds of sheep coming from upstate New York. We found out later on. And some of the sheep on that truck looked like they died because there were dead, other dead sheep on the dead pile. But Hilda probably just passed out and was unconscious. So when the trucker unloaded the sheep that walked off the truck, after that, he probably drove around back to unload the dead ones, and he just threw them on the dead pile, including Hilda. But she wasn't dead. She was just unconscious. And um, as I mentioned, it was a hot August, and it rained like the day before we saw Hilda. So the rain probably helped to revive her. And... uh, you know, so she ended up living a good life, though. Thankfully, yeah, she, it was like she was. It was like she was waiting for you. Well, something happened there, right? <laughs> we happened upon Hilda at exactly the right time, and there have been other cases like that too. Once we were driving cross country, um, going from going to California for our annual adopt a turkey program for Thanksgiving, where we encourage people to adopt a turkey to save a turkey instead of eating one. And we had a home in California, so we're on our way there. We're driving through Colorado, and we see on the side of the road a calf who had jumped out of a truck. So we got out, we pulled over our van, um, grabbed the calf, uh, brought the calf with us to California, and uh, got her veterinary care. But uh, that was a pretty unlikely occurrence as well, where here we're driving down the highway and see this calf. And we had a van, so we're in good shape. And we're going to a sanctuary, so it all worked out. Oh, my God. That's so amazing. Like, I mean, you can't script that stuff, right? It's like... Yeah, there's I I believe there's something higher at work there that, you know, allows those moments to come together perfectly. Like mm-hmm. that calf was like, I'm out of here. I I heard jeans coming by here and west. So I'm going to get in that van. That's so beautiful. And that and that's the success stories, you know, the that what we saw when we volunteered in Watkins Glen was just uh an entire organization of people just dedicated to the well-being of these animals that were, I mean, we just had so many laughs over how well they were living and how many hay beds we made for the pigs. And the, Cameron was, Cameron, it was Cameron's first day. Or Cameron something. was the one little. of the piglets that was there and he had, you know, got a hold of a hose and soaked <laughs> the pan and we had to go in and clean it all up. And it was just, those stories, I believe, make it easier to understand their beginnings. Have you found that as well? Yes. You know, people don't really think very much about pigs or cows or animals who they're eating because 
you know, once you get to know them, it's a lot harder to justify harming them and eating them the way we do without really thinking. So yeah, the individual animals essentially are like ambassadors and, and help other and help people see that they have feelings, they have personalities. We have some turkeys that will follow you around like puppy dogs, you know, in the barnyard. We have sheep who love to be petted. And after when you stop petting them, they will paw at you just like a, a cat or a dog would paw at you saying, keep petting me. Um, and we have pigs who love belly rubs. And they often know that when one of the humans comes by them, it could be a belly rub. So you touch their tummy and they flop right over. And you see like a 600-pound pig flopping over and sticking their belly out. So uh, these are animals that have feelings. They have memories. Um, and they deserve kindness. And when we treat them with kindness, I think it also feels good for us and it's actually good for us. Whereas, you know, can you imagine what it would be like to work in a slaughterhouse where your job is cutting the throats of animals for eight hours a day? That is obviously terrible for the animals, but it also does something to people. You know, cruelty to others, no matter who the others might be, whether they're other humans or other animals, um, desensitizes, I think, those who perpetuate that cruelty. And it kind of creates an incentive to lose our empathy and even to denigrate the victims of our abuse. You know, if we are harming somebody else, um, sometimes one way to justify it or make us feel okay about it is to say, well, they don't really deserve better anyway. And so then we denigrate these victims of cruelty. And, you know, this seeps into our language in ways we don't think very much about. But, you know, being called a turkey, for example, is not a compliment. Being called a pig is not a compliment. These are subtle ways that we, you know, villainize or, or, or disrespect pigs or turkeys or other animals um, and, and it's just sort of part of our language and we don't even think about it. The intention is to put down another person probably, but implicitly they're putting down these animals who are innocent and who've done nothing to deserve that kind of mis, that kind of denigration. The, you, the awareness factor of that, I was just thinking about social media now, like you didn't have this when you started 40 years ago, but this having reels, <laughs> like infatuated with reels of seeing these farms with animals having feelings or interacting or the blind cow that needs the big ball to, to find its way around the farm, which I've been, you know, gravitating to watching quite often. Um, but these things are, are, are sharing awareness that these animals do have feelings, that they do have personalities, that they are no different, um, but it's doing it in a very respectful way. And, and it's not an in-your-face way. It's more of like, oh, I never knew that cows would be so loving, that would, they, they would be so caring. They would, they would cry if, um, if their barn mates, you know, like two sheep, were removed to go to another pasture, like the cow would be upset because they're friends they're, they have a, they have a community going. So, yeah. um, social media definitely, you know, it gets a bad rap I feel. Um, but I feel there, there are many angles to take where it's actually bringing awareness because, you know, I'm one of the first ones to share a story like that on my feed because it just go back to what you were talking about. It just feels good. It does. Bad. It does. It feels good. And it also, I think with social media, we're better able to make these animals visible, their lives visible. And we do that at the sanctuary where you get to know them as not that different than cats and dogs. Uh, but there's also, you know, videotape of the cruelty of factory farming, which, you know, again, it plays a role. It's helpful. It's not a place where I don't think anybody really wants to dwell, but it's a way to at least see what is happening. But, you know, I think these positive videos of cows frolicking or, or pigs playing uh, and people interacting with these farm animals in such a positive way uh, helps hopefully to raise awareness and, and open people's hearts and minds to seeing these animals as something other than just a piece of meat on their plate because they are certainly way more than a piece of meat on their plate. These are individuals 
who have feelings, who have personalities, who have relationships, and who want to live like all of us. What what are some of the, um, or maybe one or two, greatest lessons you've learned from some of the animals you've interacted with firsthand? Yeah, well, I think the fact that they are very much social animals and they are affected by their physical, but also their social environment. And one of the examples of this is a calf who I rescued who was born on a dairy farm. He was an unwanted male calf and he was left for dead. Uh, he, he was sent to the stockyard on the day he was born. He was still wet from afterbirth. It was a freezing day and he was dying of hypothermia. So I went to the stockyard worker and I said, what's going on with this calf? He says, I got to bury him later today. And uh, I said, what if I take him off your hands? And he said, sure, go ahead. So I brought this calf to a nearby veterinarian and she said, he's got no chance of survival. Why are you wasting your time? And I said, well, you know, to me, I just want to do what I can to help him. And she said, it makes no economic sense. And I said, well, it's not about economics to me. This is an individual. I want to do what I can to help. So she finally gave him intravenous fluids and he was in really bad shape. He couldn't even lift his head. His eyes were sunken in. He was practically comatose. But I took him back to the farm with the intravenous fluids. And thankfully, the light started coming back into his eyes. Uh, he was able to lift his head. He was able to suckle on a bottle. And then after a couple of days, he was able to stand. And I was really feeling good about his progress, but he wasn't thriving. And I was wondering, what's going on? Why is this calf not thriving? And then I realized he needed to be with other cows. So I brought him out to the cow barn and I put him in a pen and they came and moved to him and he moved right back and he started thriving. And that was Opie. He ended up weighing close to 3,000 pounds and he lived with us for nearly 20 years. So, but he needed to be with his people. And so for me, the lesson there was that, you know, farm animals, just like humans and other animals, are social creatures, and we are affected by our social environment. And I've witnessed this in slaughterhouses and factory farms, where the environment is just fearful and violent and stressful. And you contrast that with what it can be like at a sanctuary, where it is healing and peaceful, you know, so, uh, and, and animals pick this up. And many times when animals first come to farm sanctuary, uh, they're afraid of people because they've only known cruelty with people. But they see the other animals reacting in a friendly way with people. And I think they recognize that this is a safe place, that they don't need to be afraid. So we take our cues uh, from those around us, uh, both human and non-human animals do. I love that story. I'm so glad you told it because, um, could you imagine if, you know, I mean, flip the table a little bit, mm-hmm. we're in this, you know, we're comatose, we're like, we're almost near death and this group of animals comes by and starts caring for us and giving us what our, what we need. We would still, we would recover physically, but we would still be longing for our people. And I think that story just it levels the playing field. It's like we all have our, our people or if we're animal, we have like our animals and, and just to see how that calf began to thrive because of the community. It's just, it's indisputable. You can't, you can't unsee that or unhear that. And I remember the first time being at Farm Sanctuary and being that close to cows and be able to look at these cows like in the eyes and have them look back at you and be able to do it without a sense of disconnection that I, you know, at that time, um, I had been living, you know, vegan for a few years and just the freedom. I think that this choice of eating well and living well, because we can without creating the unnecessary harm, which that question I posed in the intro, I got from you this question of, you know, if we can, if we can live well without creating unnecessary harm, without being a cog in that wheel of violence, like why, why wouldn't we? And as athletes, you know, BJ and I have been living this now for almost 20 years being athletes and more than a decade as doing it fully vegan, whole food. 
Um, and you, when last time we had talked, you were coming off of, you had just done Ironman Lake Placid and you were actually, you said on the podcast that you were going to be doing the Mendocino 50K, which I ended up doing as well. So my question is, um, how are you moving these days? Are you still running? Are you training for anything? You know, how is that, how is that part of your life? Cause I'm thinking that everything that you're doing and all of these heavy topics that you're sifting and sorting through in your life, like that physical activity is helpful for processing. It is. Absolutely. I'm taking long walks mainly these days. Uh, both of my knees are a bitch. I've got torn meniscus and I've not gotten it fixed and I could, but I, I can live with it. So I'm just taking long walks, which is another way to process. And, uh, and getting in nature is also, I think, really healing and really helpful. So I try to get in nature when I can. Uh, don't do that as much as I would like. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's an ongoing, yeah, just looking at reality can be challenging. So I get out and take nice long walks. Do we do any um, sort of mindful practice or journaling or anything else to help off gas some of the <laughs> plight of the world? I don't actually. You know, I think it's a good thing to do. I think a lot of people do it. I, I think for me, probably doing the work is is sort of the antidote. You know, I see a bad thing happen, I get upset about it. I'll maybe walk for a while, think about it, and then come up with what I think might be a way to address it. Um, but, uh, you know, but again, I just don't dwell in the bad stuff that much. I acknowledge it. I, un- I try to understand it, but I try not to dwell in it. And I try to dwell in doing the things I can to address the harm. Well, let's, let's, uh, let's talk about that a little bit. What are you working on uh, on Capitol Hill? Or what, are, what are some things that um, we want to bring to light that uh, we can share with our audience, something you may be passionate, extremely passionate about right now. Yeah, well, we're continuing to work on legislation to prevent cruelty. Like we got a bill in Rhode Island right now that would ban the production and sale of foie gras, which is produced by shoving a pipe down the throats of ducks and geese, uh, force feeding them to cause their livers to expand up to 10 times the normal size. So that's a very cruel practice. We were able to ban that in California uh, and we're now trying to ban it in Rhode Island. Uh, but in Washington, D.C., and in some other states also, we've had legislation introduced to shift government programs to support plant-based agriculture. And one of these bills was in New York State. It was called the Farmer Opportunity Bill, and it takes $30 million a year that New York State spends for farmland preservation, but that money has been going to the dairy industry, and it's been used to consolidate dairy production. So we want to take that $30 million, and this legislation would do it, and shift it to support plant-based agriculture, small farms, community-oriented farms, uh, farmers who've not historically been supported by government programs, people of color, women, new farmers. So that's a, an example of legislation that we're we, we worked to get introduced in New York State. We'll be doing that in other states. And also in Washington, D.C., we're looking at ways to take the billions of dollars that the USDA spends and start cutting off a couple million here or a couple hundred million there towards incentivizing plant-based agriculture, uh, including uh, through food assistance programs. One of the programs that I like a lot that we have supported in the past is called the Gus Schumacher Nutrition Incentives Program. And when people use SNAP dollars to buy fruits and vegetables at farmers markets using uh, SNAP, um, they get two for the price of one if they buy fruits and vegetables. So that incentivizes the purchase of fruits and vegetables. And when you add that additional uh, financing to those purchases, it supports farmers that are producing fruits and vegetables. So those are the types of programs that we want to expand in Washington, D.C. And we hear you have a, a beautiful new dog named Pepe. Oh. <laughs> Is this true? Well, Pepe, yeah. Pepe the Chihuahua. He was a, a foster dog, him and Winston. You know, my girlfriend and I foster dogs. And we ended up keeping those two. And yeah, Pepe's 
got a lot of personality and he's cute as heck uh, and can be sweet, but can he also be, he's also a chihuahua. So, you know. <laughs> I love it. That's great. Where do you see uh, Farm Sanctuary five to 10 years from now? I think that we will continue doing the rescue work. Our farms are now, we're being more intentional about operating the farms in a more eco-friendly way. So I can see us doing more to preserve biodiversity in wild spaces. I can see us growing food eventually. We're in the process right now of building a cafe at our farm in Watkins Glen, New York. Eventually, I would love to grow food for the cafe, um, do farm-to-table types of things. Uh, I think that we're going to be expanding our visitor opportunities, you know, so in addition to coming and spending time with the animals, there might be opportunities also for a pick-your-own uh, orchard or pick-your-own berries or pumpkin patch um, and maybe health-oriented visitor programs like maybe yoga retreats or things like that. So we're going to be expanding our visitor activities and we will continue, you know, actually reinvesting in our advocacy work to change the food system uh, because there's no sanctuary that can rescue all the animals. So ultimately we need to change the food system. And I hope that our sanctuaries become models of the kind of agriculture that serves animals, people, and the planet, you know, a plant-based food system. So we want to walk the talk on the farms and work for the policies in Washington and in other state capitals. Well, you know, Farm Sanctuary, I think, has just sparked like an international movement of sanctuaries across the globe. So I can only imagine you guys being on the leading edge that they're going to continue to follow. That's beautiful. What a trickle effect. Yeah, no, it's beautiful to see sanctuaries around the world. And in each of these places, there's an opportunity to create local change. That's an example that can then create regional, then national, then hopefully global change. Well, we recently, I recently was on the island of Hawaii uh, in Kona to race the world championships. And it just so happens, Jean, that our Airbnb host, we just chatted with her. She was there when we checked in, had turned a coffee farm into an animal sanctuary. And she she was a realtor on the island and she just dove right in, um, didn't know anything about how to do it, like not a lick how to do it, but she was figuring it out. And on our last day, we actually were uh, able to, she invited us to come up and we were able to see the cows, see the sheep and see what she had done. She had a koi fish place and um, she was super passionate about it. But the thing that I took away was like, you don't have to know all the details. Like you don't have to, you don't have to know everything about it. People were offering up suggestions and help and assistance to her and, um, and she's building something amazing there, but it just shows how far the reach goes and how people are, are thinking a little bit differently about how they can um, actually pursue change. They can actually make change by figuring it out, uh, not knowing all the answers. Yeah, yeah. And we ultimately, ultimately, we don't know all the answers, right? You just got to take a step and, and try to do the best you can. But, you know, I guess faith, right, is, is taking the first step without knowing where you're going to end up. And, you know, every day we take steps and we're not necessarily sure of where we're going to end up, but you just try to do the best you can, do it with compassion, with kindness, with, with good intent. And it often leads to good places. Absolutely. I've been really contemplating this idea of faith and, and uh, what has come to me is like faith is a belief, right? Like a belief that you can do this or a belief in what you're doing with the energy of your will behind it. Yeah. So it's yeah. like belief in will and you have been living this. And I know, you know, way back when that Oak tree came down, there was no script that said, okay, now do this, 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 and then this is what your life is going to be. Um, but you are a living example of someone who just keeps following their heart and taking those steps and, and look at this. And I know it's probably profoundly rewarding and extremely challenging, but this incredible impact that you've made on the food system. And we all look to you as a leader in this, in this movement and in this age that we so greatly need. And so thank you not only for your time today, but for the, you know, for doing your work in this world, which is, I have to 
think is exactly why you came to this crazy planet um, to fulfill what you're living now. Well, I feel lucky to do something I believe in, you know, and so I'll just keep doing it. And I'm also grateful to know folks like you and, and others who care similarly about our planet and are trying to do something to make it a little bit kinder. So we're all in it together. And that also helps. Yeah, we are. Well, thank you again, Jean. It's just uh, a pleasure to have you on the show again, to reconnect with you after so many years. And it seems like you're doing well and just keep going. Will do. You too. 